Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. morning and Merry Christmas to you. If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn to Isaiah chapter 51. We're going to be in verses 1 through 11 this morning as we continue in our series looking at these Advent words. We've looked at hope and peace, and this morning we're going to focus our attention on joy. So let's look now to Isaiah 51 and read the words of the prophet. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. For the Lord comforts Zion He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving in the voice of song. Give attention to me, my people, and give ear to me, my nation, for a law will go out for me, and I will set my justice for a light to the peoples. My righteousness draws near. My salvation has gone out, and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands hope for me, and for my arm they wait. Lift up your eyes to the heavens, and look at the earth beneath. For the heavens vanish like smoke. The earth will wear out like a garment, and they who dwell in it will die in like manner but my salvation will be forever and my righteousness will never be dismayed. Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revilings, for the moth will eat them up like a garment and the worm will eat them like wool. But my righteousness will be forever and my salvation to all generations. Awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake, as in days of old, the generations of long ago. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to him in prayer as we always do and ask for his help in discerning his word this morning. Good and gracious heavenly father, we thank you right now for the rain that is falling to replenish the earth, to give us exactly what we need. And your word tells us 
that just like the rain and the snowfall, they bring seed for the sower, bread for the eater. So your word goes out and it does not return void. It accomplishes everything you desire it to do. We pray that would be the case this morning. May your word fall on fertile hearts to produce fruit. And the fruit we look for this morning is joy, your joy. So please help me as I proclaim your truth. May it be without error. May you protect the hearts of your people as they hear your word. May the truth come forth and be planted deep. And may we indeed rejoice this morning over the word that is proclaimed that we pray in all of this, it would bring glory to the person of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray all of these things in his precious name. We love you. Amen. J.R.R. Tolkien is the author of the Lord of the Rings. He once coined a literary term called eucatastrophe. It's the opposite of a catastrophe. And in his opinion, it is the mark of a good fairy tale. In such a story, it seems like everything's going wrong for the protagonist, that it looks like there's no way past the impending doom that they're going to face. But then suddenly, the doom is reversed, the enemy is defeated, the protagonist overcomes, and the reader is filled with one word, joy. In Tolkien's words, it is the sudden happy turn in a story which pierces you with a joy that brings tears. That's you, catastrophe. And what we read here in Isaiah chapter 51 is the prophet telling Israel that a you catastrophe is coming for them. A sudden happy turn that will bring everlasting joy. I believe Isaiah's words are an excellent guide for us to experience true biblical joy in this season of Advent. And this passage and this season that we are keeping tell us a eucatastrophe is still ahead for us. That there's joy inexpressible that can be ours if we look to the Lord for it. Before we dive into the text and the sermon, let's make sure that we have our bearings with the book of Isaiah. If you were to go back to the opening page and the opening line of the entire book, you will see that he was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Judah during the reign of four different kings, Uzziah, Jothan, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. And while some of these kings served the Lord in some ways, particularly Hezekiah, none of them turned the hearts of the people completely to worship Yahweh. Their hearts were hardened by centuries of giving themselves over to the false worship of other gods. They did not keep the covenant that God had entered into with them. And by Hezekiah's time, the Assyrian empire in the north is threatening Jerusalem. And after Isaiah's time, Isaiah predicted that the Babylonians to the east would also rise up against Jerusalem. So all of this would happen because of Israel's sin against God. 
So as we look at the book of Isaiah, much of that prophecy is Isaiah calling the people to repentance, to turn away from their sin, to turn to the Lord, or his judgment would come. They did not repent, and his judgment came when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and took many in Judah into exile, a little over a hundred years after Isaiah's time. But starting in chapter 40 of Isaiah, the prophecy changes somewhat. He begins speaking comfort to the people of Israel, that their exile wouldn't last forever. And so it was that after Isaiah's time and after the exile, these words that we were reading this morning and all the words that are contained in this book would have become treasured texts for the people of Israel. So perhaps it would be helpful for us as we approach the passage this morning to imagine ourselves as Jewish exiles returning from that exile, small in number, returning to a devastated city, no king on the throne, no temple to worship Yahweh. How could any good come from these dark circumstances? Isaiah 51 is brilliantly crafted poetry for the exile. He says that in the middle of this incredible heartache and darkness that they would experience, the story is going to turn and there will be joy. A joyful you catastrophe is coming. That's what we church need to see and hear this morning. So the main idea that we're going to look at this morning is that those who seek the Lord for salvation, delight, and satisfaction are promised everlasting joy. Those who seek the Lord for salvation, delight, and satisfaction are promised everlasting joy. And we'll look at that in four different ways in this passage in our outline, starting with number one, joy in the Lord's new creation. Then we'll look at number two, joy in the Lord's coming kingdom. Third, we'll see joy in the Lord's unending salvation. And then finally, we'll see joy in the Lord's ultimate victory. So let's start off with point one, joy in the Lord's new creation. You can see that in verses one through three. Isaiah addresses those who seek the Lord in verse one. And he gives in these verses two examples of new creation in this text. First, he poetically calls them to remember the rock quarry from which they come. Remember your story, Israel. And we find that in Abraham and Sarah, and that is covered in Genesis chapter 12. I can't overemphasize how important in the biblical story Genesis 12 is. It has ramifications for the rest of the Old Testament and the apostles and Jesus point back to this part of the story. Because there, God called Abraham. He didn't call a man of power, and he didn't call an army. He called one man, and an old man at that. He chose him to make him and his family great. When he wasn't great, he had no children. He had no family. He was old, and his wife was barren. Figuratively speaking, they were a wilderness with no ability to produce life. 
And yet, God produced the massive family of Israel through them. And Isaiah brings this to the people's mind to assure them that though in exile and return from exile, they may be small in number. That is exactly how God plans to do his marvelous work. Look at verse 2 again. Why did God call Abraham? Well, at the end of the verse, it says that I might bless him and multiply him. That's a subtle nod to the second example of new creation that Isaiah gives. This is the same Eden blessing that God originally gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. And in that story, the earth was as barren as Sarah's womb when it came to sustaining life. Those of you who are in Cornerstone class, I do hold ex nihilo that God created all of this out of nothing. But the text of the scripture does say when he created and he spoke it into existed, existence, it started with something. In Genesis 1, we see that it describes the world as a watery wasteland. In Genesis 2, it describes the land with no bushes or plants before God raised Adam out of the dust. Isaiah latches on to those images and says that that is what the Lord is going to do for Zion. He's going to provide a new creation. Look at verse 3. The Lord is going to make her wilderness like Eden. He's going to make their desert like that garden temple of the Lord. And what's the result? Joy. Joy and gladness will be found in her in Zion once again. Church, I think it's important for us to look at these stories way back in the Old Testament, and we should not see them as just isolated singular events when it comes to history or especially to the Lord's character. This is who God is. He is always making things new. He is the God of new creation. He is the God who brings life and light. And for us this morning, however dark or hopeless the circumstances that might be before us, he can create life in the midst of it that ultimately brings us joy. And we're called to trust in him for that. But to do so, it requires his personal presence, his power, and his authority. And that brings us to our second point, joy in the Lord's coming kingdom. And we'll see this in verses four through five. While the words king and kingdom don't appear in the text, it's very clear that we should hear Yahweh's words as edicts of the true king of Israel. First off, look how he addresses Israel. He addresses them in verse four as my people my nation. He's claiming his authority, his ownership as king over this people. He then says his law will go out, his justice as a light. That's what a good king is supposed to do, create good laws that bring justice, that bring equity to the people. And the good king would do this just like he did when he created the heavens and the earth. Light 
into that darkness, order into the chaos of Israel's sin. He also says in verse five that his righteousness is drawing near. The Lord would not deal with Israel the way they had dealt with him. He would not deal with them according to their sins, but according to his own royal righteousness. And he says, it's not far off. It's coming. It's drawing near. He then says, verse 5 again, my salvation has gone out, that he will judge the peoples. It gives us this picture of a king riding out into battle, riding out into battle to fight for and save the people he loves to deliver them from the enemy. And what are the people doing in response to the king's edicts? We see that at the end of verse 5, the coastlands hope for me, for my arm they wait. They are hoping and waiting expectedly for their king to come and deliver them. Remember who this letter, this book, this prophecy is coming to. It's coming to the people of Judah. And the people of Judah grew up on the stories of David, the shepherd king of Israel. He ruled those people very much in this way as a reflection of the Lord's own kingship. They were waiting for that kind of king to come again and deliver them just as David did. And just as David did, they were looking for the joy that the Lord would bring. I think it's important for us here in America, separated from all that, that if we are going to approach Advent rightly, if we're going to find our joy, we're not going to do it by chasing after the American dream. We're not going to do it by finding our ideal version of this government that we have over us. Because our soul's deepest need is one that this country cannot fulfill. What we need is a righteous, saving king. Someone who is full of justice and light, who brings joy with him, when he reigns. And Yahweh is the only such king in the entire universe capable of doing that. And we're only going to to experience that joy now as much as we are doing what the coastlands do in this passage, as much as we are hoping and waiting for our king and his salvation with unrelenting anticipation. We desire it. We can't wait for it. And that brings us to our third point, joy in the Lord's unending salvation. We see this in verses six through eight. Now, while the verses we just looked at about the coming king are reassuring, Israel still faces a harsh reality that makes waiting hard. Even when they returned from exile, they were under the authority of, of foreign rulers. We read in the Psalms and the prophets that Israel is mocked going into exile, during their exile, even returning from exile. You can read in Ezra, in Nehemiah, as 
as the exiles return and try to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple, they meet mockery and threats from all sides. How could they find joy in those harsh circumstances? Well, in these verses, Isaiah draws their attention to a deeper reality than the harsh earthly reality that appears before their eyes. So in verse 6, he tells them, look to the heavens, look to the earth, look up at the sky, look at the ground around you, look at just creation around you. Consider that what you see now doesn't last. It changes. It wears out. And verse 6 tells us that the people who live in the earth, particularly the powers that be, are just like them. Those cruel kingdoms, those cruel leaders, those cruel governments, they don't last. They end. But in contrast to that, at the end of verse 6, the Lord's salvation doesn't change. It doesn't wear out. It will never end. It will be forever. And no amount of human authority and power, this verse says, will ever be able to limit or dismay his righteousness. Verses 7 through 8 echo this truth. Isaiah addresses those who know the Lord's righteousness, who carry his law in their hearts as their treasure. Though many would revile them, mock them, despise them, and even as we see in the book of Esther, try to destroy them, it is these evil people who will be consumed. Those who revile the people of Yahweh might seem powerful now, might seem strong now, but they will not last either. Verse 8 at the end is the rhyme to verse 6. But the Lord's righteousness will be forever. His salvation will last through all generations. So the prophet is uncovering this glorious heavenly reality to shine light on the dark circumstances that the people are in. When they see their story through that lens, it results in joy in the Lord's salvation. You and I can look around at our lives right now and find it challenging to be joyful. Maybe some of you came in this morning trying to put on our church faces, trying to put on the happy face, trying to cover up what is a hard circumstance for you to be joyful. We see the wars on the news. And if we're observant, we recognize that there are even more wars that are not covered. We see the state of our world in regard to Christianity, and we find ourselves mocked and reviled, and Christians in other parts of the world are persecuted, put in prison, even put to death. What we call holiness, the world often calls hate. And we even look at our own lives as we struggle and toil along this journey. Life can be so hard for us. Bills, health, anxiety, depression, suffering. It could seem like pain is our only reality. Isaiah's words are exactly what we need this morning. We need the heavenly reality uncovered and displayed for us. Those who seem strong now do not last. 
Those who revile us now do not last. The painful circumstances of our lives that seem like they'll never end, they do not last. But the salvation and righteousness of the Lord will last forever. It endures with nothing to stop it. This is the promise of the coming king and his kingdom. And when we can look to him with the eyes of faith to perceive the heavenly reality, and when we cling to that for our soul's satisfaction, we can experience joy in the Lord, even in the present circumstances. And that brings us to our final point this morning, joy in the Lord's ultimate victory. And we see this in verses 9 through 11. Up to this point, Yahweh has been speaking to the people, but now the people through Isaiah respond and speak to him. All this anticipation of the king and his kingdom and the joy that will come with it has been building. Isaiah and the people, they can't keep it in. They shout a command back to the Lord. Awake, awake, Yahweh, wake up and do what you've promised to do. We shouldn't read this as the command of a child who is disrespectfully telling their parents what to do. No, this is the heart cry of joy, delight, and trust in the Lord. Of course, God is not asleep. He neither slumbers nor sleeps, the psalmist tells us. But poetically, the people call to the Lord in faith. They want this so badly for him to bring his salvation and his kingdom and to do it soon. And so we should be as well. And they do it and address Yahweh as Yahweh has reminded them of stories in their past. Now they turn to Yahweh and ask him to remember a story that happened long ago when he did this very thing. Look at verse nine again at the end. It says, a very strange question. Was it not you who cut Rahab in pieces, who pierced the dragon. Now, some of you may have read that and you just scratch your heads and move along. But maybe, and I know this to be true, some of you are like me. You read a lot of fairy tales and fantasy stories with dragons in them. Could there be anything more wonderful this morning than finding out that, yes, here in the Bible, there be dragons? And we get to talk about it during a Christmas sermon, no less. You have no idea, church, how glorious a morning it is for me to be able to talk about this subject, and I'm inviting you to come along with me in it. Whether you fall in my camp or not, we need to answer the question, what is Isaiah talking about here? Well, the ancient Near Eastern civilization saw chaotic waters of the ocean and the seas as a mythic beast called Rahab, a sea dragon. This monster wanted to drag creation back into chaos and death. And Isaiah borrows that kind of pop culture imagery and he stamps it on Israel's story. And if you read verse 10, you see exactly which story he's referring to. So when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, they were treated brutally by Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Hebrew baby boys were drowned in the Nile River, but Yahweh came with a strong arm to rescue his people. 
And he did so by leading them through the Red Sea, through dark, chaotic waters. Pharaoh and his army ended up drowning in that sea, never to oppress the people of Israel again. Pharaoh, Egypt, the Red Sea, they are all packaged together here with Isaiah and presented to us as a sea dragon that held God's people captive in the chaos of oppression and death. But Yahweh defeated that sea dragon soundly. It was no contest. When he uses the words in verse 9 of cutting it in pieces, of piercing the dragon, it's that imagery of God dividing the seas apart. He makes the dragon itself the way of escape for his people when he rescues them. And as the video we watched showed on the other side, the people of Israel sang for joy at the sudden deliverance. And Isaiah and the people of Israel are crying out to Yahweh, do it again. Defeat the dragon, lead your people into a new exodus. And when he does, verse 11 tells us that the ransomed of Yahweh return to Zion with everlasting joy. They will come to the mountain of their king with delight. The sorrow, the sighing, it's going to run away. It's going to flee. And it's going to happen when the Lord comes as king and reigns victorious over that sea monster of death. Church, here's another heavenly reality we need to see this morning. That our toil, our pain, our suffering, our sin, our death, there's an actual dragon from the beginning of the story that's behind all of that. That serpent in the garden with Adam and Eve, it's a small costume for a vicious, rebellious monster known to us as the devil. He wants nothing more than for us as humans to experience sin, chaos, and death apart from our king. Our enemy this morning is not flesh and blood. It is not the rulers and authorities of this world. There is a deeper and darker evil behind all of that. It is this ancient evil dragon who seeks to steal, kill, destroy us and our joy. But there's good news for us because the promise of Genesis 3.15 and the promise of this passage is that a day is coming when the snake's head will be crushed, when the dragon will be pierced and cut into pieces, and it will be no contest. Yahweh the king will deliver us from the power of the devil and sin and death forever and ever. And when he does, we too will come to the mountain of the Lord our king with everlasting joy. And we can be joyful now as we hope and we wait for that ultimate victory that the Lord is going to bring when he defeats that dragon. Now, with all of these images from the prophet in our hearts and minds, we can imagine what it must have been like as an Israelite reading this, but waiting century after century, experiencing sin and death all the while. But then suddenly, the catastrophe came, the sudden happy turn that brought great joy. 
And Jonathan shared it with us last week in Luke chapter 2, verses 10 through 11. And the angel said to them, the shepherds, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great, what? Joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Tolkien himself found the whole story of the Bible leading to this, the greatest and truest eucatastrophe ever. Here's what he wrote. The birth of Christ is the eucatastrophe of man's history. The resurrection is the eucatastrophe of the story of the incarnation. This story begins and ends in joy. The Lord Jesus Christ and all the portrait of the gospels of him that the gospels present of him, his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his ultimate revelation and return. This is the king who alone can promise us and bring us deep, satisfying joy. It's that sounding joy we sang about that will be repeated forever and ever. But that leaves us with a question this morning. Who gets to experience this joy now and forever? Notice again in Isaiah 51, whom the Lord addresses. You who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, my people, my nation, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. This joy is an exclusive joy because it's only for those who seek the Lord for salvation, delight, and satisfaction. And that's a problem for us because in our sinful human state, we don't qualify. Isaiah says two chapters later in chapter 53 that we all like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned every one of us to his own way. We have desired our sin more than we have desired the king. But the king has not abandoned us to our sin. He has come to save us by being born for us. He died for us. He rose again for us to take our sin away. Hebrews 12.2 says that Jesus endured our sin, our shame, our suffering on the cross in our place, and he did it for the joy that was set before him. He has risen again. He is seated at the Father's right hand for you and for me, and he is making his kingdom and his people ready. Advent means arrival. The king is coming again to fulfill everything we read in Isaiah 51. Do you know this king? Do you know Jesus Christ as your crucified and risen king? Are you trusting in him for salvation, delight, and satisfaction? I invite you with the love of Jesus. Come, do that today. Put your trust and faith in him today. That may be one person or multiple people in this room, but of course, church, many of us in here would confess Jesus as our Savior and King this morning, and hallelujah, so it should be. But there's a challenge and invitation for us here too. As Christians, are we seeking Jesus daily for salvation, 
delight and satisfaction? Do you find your joy in the person of Jesus Christ? The reality is, and I'm guilty of it too, we get far too distracted. We forget what we are waiting for. We look for joy in all the wrong places, particularly this time of year. C.S. Lewis once wrote, and it's probably my favorite quote he's ever given, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. The best joy that this world can offer us is a mud puddle. Jesus offers us a bottomless ocean of his grace and his joy because he offers us himself. In him, as Diane read earlier from Psalm 16, there is fullness of joy. If you want to see your joy increase, church, then we need to look with anticipation to this king, his arrival, and his coming kingdom. And one of the ways we do that is to remember Jesus and his death through communion. It's in this act that we look both backward to what Jesus has accomplished for us, and we look forward to his coming advent. Because Jesus himself told his disciples at the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26, 39, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So as we prepare our hearts and our minds for communion, I invite you, brothers and sisters, to look forward to the day when we will do this very thing at the marriage feast of the Lamb, when he comes again for his bride. May we look ahead to the final you catastrophe he has promised, that sudden happy turn in the story. May we seek every day with anticipation the advent of King Jesus. May we delight and be satisfied in him and his salvation alone. And may we celebrate this season the everlasting joy that he has given us, both now and forever, when he comes to reign as king. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we come before you, having heard these ancient words of the prophet Isaiah. They are your divine words for us, your church this morning. I pray right now, first and foremost, for anyone in this room, anyone watching this live stream that doesn't know this king, that doesn't know your son, Jesus, who died and rose again for them, they don't know everlasting joy. Would you, by your Holy Spirit, draw them to yourself this morning, to salvation and joy that you alone can bring? I pray for your church this morning and me as part of your church, that we would be 
reminded and revived again, refreshed again, we remember again that you bring us joy and that joy is promised to us if we will seek you. We will seek you for salvation. We will seek you for delight. We will seek you for satisfaction. We look to you, our King, for our joy. And we pray you would bring it to us this morning and you would bring it to us when you come again with the new heavens and the new earth. And we praise you for all of this, King Jesus. You're worthy of our praise. You're worthy of us seeking you. You're worthy of the joy that you bring to us. We pray all these things now as we prepare to remember you. In the name of Jesus, we love you. Amen.